welcome to the Hunts Back Country podcast. This is episode number 427, and our guest is one of you, a listener of the show. Caleb joins us today to share some of his story, and he's going to join us later this fall to share the rest of it. Caleb is from the Midwest, and he's been hunting elk for several years now with some success, but he's has some different hunts planned this year. And I was curious to hear from Caleb about his previous experiences and then compare that with some of the experiences that he's going to have this year. So as you'll find out, Caleb has actually hunted cow elk in his previous years and he has a bull elk tag this year. That's actually a late season tag, which he has not hunted. So between some elk hunting experience, but cows versus bulls, early season versus late season, there was just a lot of great topics to talk about. Caleb did go on an archery elk hunt this fall. We chat about that experience in addition to some of the previous year's experience he has, and then how he's planning for this late season rifle bull elk hunt. There's a lot to take away from this one, some certain things on slowing down, how to approach elk, how to hunt cows specifically, and a whole lot more. As always, guys, we thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback from us, just send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the show, consider just sharing it with a friend or leave us a rating or a view in whatever podcast app that you're using. If you can, hit pause and do that right now. Come on back. Here's this conversation with Caleb. My name is Caleb Buck. I, uh, I'm a Missouri resident, kind of here in that southwest Missouri area, Joplin area. Um, not historically, uh, you know, I didn't grow up hunting. Um, I grew up kind of around that. I, I had a BB gun and a four-wheeler and was just a feral little redneck kid on a farm. <laughs> so <clears throat> I had that going for me. Both my parents were foresters, but I didn't grow up um, with anybody really hunting in my family. So I would call myself an adult onset hunter. Um, I didn't, I think a buddy took me turkey hunting in high school. Um, but I didn't deer hunt for my first time until I was 21. So I was, you know, full blown adult by then technically. Um, so me and my dad kind of started deer hunting. Um, I never saw him kill a deer, but I, I killed some deer. We, you know, really kind of bonded over that. I didn't, I didn't, um, live with my dad growing up then my parents were divorced. So I didn't have that really great connection all the time with my dad. He was, I think less of a deer hunter historically. He grew up in Illinois and they were really into bird hunting, like ducks and geese and fishing. I, the pictures I have of him from his childhood are like thousands and thousands of fish were slain. Um, so the, the big game side, I just didn't have that background in my family. Um, but he and I started deer hunting together. Um, and as an adult, I kind of grew a relationship with him and, um, you know, kind of tragically here back in 2017, he passed away. Um, and it was kind of that experience of losing my dad and feeling like I missed out on some adventures it really kind of um, fueled the fire in me to go and do some of this Western hunting stuff. So that's kind of been my inspiration of pursuing this Western stuff. Um, I kind of, you know, just happened to find the Steve Ranella content, you know, uh, the meat eater stuff. And that really inspired me and kind of showed me it was possible. My dad and I used to watch hunting videos back at, uh, back at his house and I remember watching a New Mexico elk hunting video and I was just thinking one day how cool it'd be to do that and then kind of the the content that's out there now that shows how doable the the DIY public land stuff is kind of really inspired me and then this this um you know event losing my dad really kind of pushed me to not miss out on these adventure opportunities I was 30 when he died and he was 60 so it was kind of a, it was kind of a, a light bulb moment for me of, it made me feel like I was halfway dead, you know, uh, mm-hmm. comparing it to, to how long he lived. So I really wanted to take advantage of the time I had and I have two boys. So thinking about the adventure that I could potentially have with them that I didn't get to have with my dad, it's, um, it really kind of moved me and motivated me to really be a, li- a lot more intentional 
with uh, seeking adventure and what I end up doing with my hunting trips and trying to involve the kids. So nowadays, my whitetail hunting at home is really just about the kids. My nephew um, is uh, 14 or 15. He's gotten into whitetail hunting, and my kids are going to be legal age, both legal age this year. So they're super into it. So back at home, whitetails, it's all about the kids now. Um, and, but then out West is, is for dad. So I've been, I've been going, going on elk hunts for the last four years, learning, struggling. Um, I've had some success, but they've all been cow tags so far because they're a lot more acquirable. But this year I do have my first, um, antlered elk tag that is a late season tag. Um, I got that tag. Um, it's a limited entry tag one of the December 1st to January 31st Wyoming tags. So it's pretty late season. Um, but there wasn't an archery, uh, option on that specific tag. It's almost more of a depredation type tag, the way they have it set up. Um, so I didn't want to miss out on a year of archery hunting elk. So, um, I have a friend that lives out in Wyoming, um, that agreed to let me join them and having done some trips without a tag in my pocket, I kind of knew that I would be a little more motivated and want uh, to be out there if I had a tag in my pocket. So I chose to get a leftover cow tag so that I at least was able to legally, you know, carry my bow and shoot something in, um, if that ended up being an option. So I got a cow tag for this year and put put a trip on the calendar where I could join them for two weekends of hunting. So they, they're kind of, you know, weekend warriors out there. Um, and in the middle of the week, I planned on staying by myself, uh, just hunting by myself. So, um, it was, mm, let's see, I think I departed on like September 7th or 8th. So it was kind of early, early to mid September hunt. Um, kind of odd. I thought on this trip, on the weekends, the bugling action was significantly higher than during the week. Could have been a coincidence. Could have also been, you know, weekend warriors out there bugling, getting them stirred up and bugling more. I'm not 100% sure, but the action on the weekends was pretty good. During the week was pretty slow and it was a grind. Um, but it forced me to kind of um, move a lot more, be, be more mobile, try tactics that... Um, maybe I hadn't tried before, uh, try a wide range of tactics. And I ended up learning, learning a lot. I spent a lot of time looking for fresh sign in new spots, which was, I think, really helpful and educational for my, for my elk hunting knowledge. And then learning how to move in a way with respect to the wind and with respect to noise and concealment in a way that would let me kind of still hunt into elk without spooking them out and actually actually got i got it within within shooting distance multiple times but um never never connected the dots so that that alone felt like a success but yeah can um, we camp on, of, yeah can we camp yeah, on some ahead. of that so like r- remind me to come back to that moving in and getting in bow range uh, i want to come back and talk about that but before that you mentioned like trying different tactics and you know, a different approach than some of what you've done in the past. Was that intentional because it was something you wanted to try or was that part of hunting with these guys and that's just the way that they hunted? I think it's probably a little both. I think I'm still like learning my style. I've mostly done kind of mid-season rifle hunts. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's single digits. Um, I enjoy the single digit stuff. I, I kind of like the suffering. It's like, I, I like, I like when the mountain breaks me to a degree. Cause I, I, I always learn something. Um, and it kind of like, you know, it's like scar tissue almost like it, that, that was a type two fun. Yeah. You know, you always look back fondly on that. But, um, so I just don't have a, a, a lot of archery season experience. So, I was still trying to figure out what tactics would work for me. And I had a cow tag in my pocket. So it wasn't just, all right, if there's a bugle, I can go to that bugle and I can, you know, potentially, you know, launch an arrow at whatever's bugling. Um, I was just kind of tagging along with um, um, Ross 
who is my friend out in Wyoming, and he introduced me to Eric on that trip. Both really awesome guys, and were super patient with me and tolerant of of me uh, not having the experience that they have. So I would say their style was um, bust. From from what I observed, it was super sound based. Like they had to be bugling. If they're not bugling. We kind of just went to a ridge and just sat still, and I am very fidgety, um, as they would probably attest to. So we got to that ridge, and it was like it was very quiet. It was very quiet in the middle of the day, um, and I kind of wanted to start going and stalking around quite a bit. But um, after they had left and we we hadn't got anything on the ground yet, um, that's when I was like, all right, now I want to try some some different stuff. And uh, at, Ross actually stayed through Monday with me, but Monday was pretty quiet, bugle-wise. They were in there. We actually, let's see, Sunday night, uh, Eric left Sunday afternoon, and then Sunday night, we had a 7x7 seven seven that we actually glassed across Canyon that would not shut up. Beautiful 7x7. Seven seven. But after staring at that 9x7 deadhead that I found, we first were like, oh, he's he's all right. But we were we'd been kind of um, uh, skewed by the dinosaur skull that that I'd found. Yeah, so that that deadhead you mentioned, but uh, podcast listeners didn't hear. You had sent me photos. You found a massive deadhead. What was it a nine by seven? Right. Yes. So um, uh, backing up a little bit, uh, I drove straight out from Missouri. Left Missouri at three a.m. Um, I think it's about an 18 hour drive, got to the field in the dark, um, kind of rushed to get my gear together, shoot my bow a little bit in the dark, went straight into the field. And then on day one, um, we had some uh, kind of bedded midday bugles that we were kind of triangulating and getting close to. And in the process of moving around a little bit, I saw what I thought was a shed. Um, so I kind of motioned for the guys to stop. We went over and checked it out and it ended up being a nine by seven deadhead from the fall before um just absolutely massive huge palmation um around the g3 and g4 area just absolutely gargantuan and to be who i would claim to be like a meat hunter adventure hunter for me to find this giant beast is almost like it's almost like i don't feel worthy of it um but it was just a really fun experience and to get to kind of share that with Ross and Eric on that trip and then see the people's faces as we've showed it to them or showed photos. It's, it's been really fun. So um, yeah. I don't have a score yet for that, but I did leave that out in Wyoming so that an experienced individual could clean and kind of um, restore it somewhat. It'll, it'll stay as kind of a Euro mount. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like uh, shoulder mounting something that I just found out in the field makes sense to me, but uh, I think kind of leaving it as I found it, you know, as, you know, a Euro style, I think would be neat and getting to share that with friends and family for decades to come is kind of what I'm looking forward to. But um, it doesn't, it didn't, it didn't, uh, didn't fill my cooler. I'll say that, but um, (laughs) it sure, it sure looks really cool. Yeah. Jumping back in one thing I wanted to make sure we hit, uh, I know some listeners ears perked up as you've talked about hunting multiple years now and on, on this trip for cows. And it's a question that we've gotten and I would just love to hear more about your experience doing that. And I know, again, some of that's been, as you said, like mid season rifle stuff and it is different than archery. And I think this may tie back into what we talked about with like you approaching things differently this year, but I would just love to kind of camp on that theme a little bit in terms of how were you planning on during archery season trying to fill a cow tag when so much of the typical tactics and strategies in archery season has to do with vocal elk, bugling bulls, and all that. So uh, take that where you want, but I know that that is something that some folks will be interested in hearing about. Yeah, and I'm certainly one of those individuals always keyed in on that secret bit of wisdom that's just how do you kill a cow when you know the bulls are really the most vocal ones so it's it's not a question i would say that i have answered yet i am certainly a novice elk hunter i would say with my you know this is now my fourth elk season but um 
for the for the rifle portion, I've actually had herds bugling late October. Last year, the elk I shot last year, the first herd was just absolutely screaming across the canyon, thousand yards away. This is almost November, and they're coming down the hill. So they vocalized, and that helped me key in on that herd. But they were in a burn, so you could still glass them really well. And I was in a I was in a position to glass. That's what I've that's what I have um, favored most in that mid uh, mid season cow hunt strategy is getting up high, glassing, obviously always keeping the wind um, in consideration. But uh, there, the first season we went out, it was actually extremely warm. It was kind of early October and it was, there was probably some days in the eighties. Those elk did not come out of the dark timber. It was, it was more like what I experienced on this last trip, this mid September trip where they were kind of, it was warm. They were kind of hunkered down in the dark timber. Um, there wasn't a full moon or anything, um, on this last trip, but they were very seldom out in the open like I experienced them a little bit later in the season. So that alone, I think, forces you to use a different tactic. The areas I've been hunting also had slightly different styles of terrain, and the types of um, forest structures have been a little different. So uh, I've been hunting the same unit for um, the last two seasons where I've filled my tag has been the same unit. It's reasonable slopes nothing crazy steep in my opinion uh there's some mixed burns some partial burns and then some super dark timber pockets so you know i'll train to be um efficient and put the put the bullet in the vitals out to 400 yards and then i end up getting a 100 yard shot um both of my elk that i've killed in that unit have been 100 yard shots um so the 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 timber kind of limits my range there so my strategy with the mid-season has been uh if there's snow and it's it's actually been i mean i'm sure you've experienced this the muck and the moisture mid and late season out there is beyond anything that i had ever anticipated it almost broke me day one on one trip just how wet and muddy it was um I know you guys talk about boots a lot and I certainly take a lot of that advice, but um, some of the boots you guys talk about, I, I love my Makra uh, combis. I know you use the Trex, I think, but um, those things are not waterproof. They are awesome in dry conditions, but I've had, I'm on my third pair and I, I think it, I, they're just not waterproof. So I, I got into some mud and muck and water Creek crossings instantly wet Um I've upgraded to some full full leather ones that are just completely bombproof now. But um, so switching to trying now archery, I wanted to try rifle first because I thought I could be successful with a rifle sooner than a bow. And after this, well, I actually went archery elk hunting last year as well. My gear totally fell apart on me on that trip, and I lost all confidence in my equipment. So I kind of, I kind of stopped um the elk hunting on that trip because i actually had a pronghorn tag um and my thought was well i'm already out here spending the 500 dollars in gas to get out here why don't i just buy the archery stamp i'll go archery elk hunt a little bit go do my pronghorn hunt with my rifle then come back to archery uh that was a terrible idea um i have heard you guys and other podcasts uh caution against doing that type of thing i did it anyways you were right um, that was too much for me to bite off. Uh, I was trying to tune my bow setup, which is falling apart. Most of which I've addressed this season. I was doing low development on three rifles. I think it was just too much to try and pull off last year. Um, but so this year, my tactic this year was kind of see what, um, see what these guys that are going to let me go with them, see what they do, try and learn from them. And then when they're gone, I can try a bunch of other things so like i like i think i already said they were primarily listen respond to whatever um you know make choices based on whatever you're hearing but not extremely aggressive stomping in there not um you know kind of more that i would say that born and raised style where you just move bugle move bugle just looking for that one that will respond they were they were fairly conservative i would say um and it was it was really fun to kind of see them do their thing 
But then when they left, I um, wanted to try some different stuff because they had they had the general tag being residents and I didn't I had the cow tag. So how could I possibly find success with a cow that, you know, isn't making significant vocalizations? We did hear some cow calling on the trip. It was not very significant. But um, so being that I don't like to sit still, the uh, still hunting, um, I, I found really fun. Um, actually the day Ross went back home, um, he left around two forty-five PM and by 4 PM I was within 40 yards of a herd drawing my bow back. Um, we were, we were perched above where we knew elk were bedded. We didn't know which way they would go after that. So we kind of made a together, made a plan where I would go above with the wind um, and it wouldn't blow them out of there. It totally worked. Um, the terrain was, uh, once I got in there, I wished I wasn't in there. It was so incredibly steep and it was blowdowns that were like throat high. So it was very steep and difficult to navigate and probably explains why the elk felt so secure in there. Um, but I ended up getting in there, finding some fresh poop, finding some fresh tracks. So using that, I just, very slowly, quietly, constantly paying attention to the wind, tried to see which way they were heading. And, you know, that's the one big thing I've over the years, the, these couple seasons I've been hunting that I've gotten better at is like trying to think like an elk. What are they going to want to do now at this time of the day? Are they moving to feeding or bedding? Which way is the wind probably going where they're at? And how would they use that for their own protection? So, um, I have found them often in the places I've been in these just really stucky places to get into. Um, the herd that I got on last fall, I was within 200 yards of them and I could see all of them, but I couldn't even get a shot with my rifle. It was so thick and nasty. The wind was in their face, um, but I was in this weird little pocket 200 yards away, the, the wind was perfect for me, but they, anything, anything approaching them, they could see coming through this burn. It was so thick and nasty. Nothing coming at them could move quickly and efficiently at them. And they would, so they, it seemed like they felt secure there. So I've, I kind of saw something similar in archery, but it was in this thick, dark timber pocket. Anything that would be coming at them would surely be making a bunch of noise. I just happened to be moving so stinking slow that I didn't spook them out. I got, I didn't even see them until I was about 65 yards from a little spike that was down in the bottom of this just super lush drainage. Once I got in there, I, I could see why they were down in there. There was tons of water. The moisture out there this year has been incredible. So it's been super, super green. They had food, they had cover, they had water. They nearly had no reason to leave probably. So I could tell why they were down in there. So once I got down to that bottom, trying to find a lane um, within what I would consider my um, max distance. I didn't want to shoot past 40 yards. So I started scooting around, moving around and I'm most of the brush there. There was a lot of those. Um, I'm not sure the technical name, but they're like a mountain current uh, berry plant. They have little spikes on them, but it was waist high. I just looked at the GoPro footage of it not too long ago and I was holding my bow, you know, at chest level, trying to get through this stuff. I was making noise, but the wind was in my favor. The wind was switching up and down, but I came side hill to them. So they never smelled me. Um, so I kept scooting closer and it was just impossible to not make noise. Uh, once I found the lane that I liked, I scooted into it. And as soon as I scooted into it, this cow from like 50 yards uh, saw me move. And I had cows within 30 yards of me they just weren't in that lane so she started getting a little nervous i ranged my opening the, the end of the opening was at 40 yards um so she started moving away and started pulling some of the elk with her when she did that um i was ready to cow call and stop stop somebody i had my lane picked out there was two trees the back of it was 40 yards so um like as the elk were moving across, I started cow calling. A calf stopped absolutely perfect. Gave me the absolute perfect shot. Perfectly broadside, perfectly in my lane. Um, so, I, and I was jacked up. 
I was, my feet were shaking. I was so excited. Um, I anchored and I let it fly and I watched the air, the air was perfect left to right. And I watched it arc and then just go over its back, glance off a limb and then just never to be seen again. Like oh, man. $60 arrow. And it was kind of, um, it was kind of heartbreaking in the moment because it felt like a failure initially, but I drove from Missouri to Wyoming. I saw and heard elk every single day. I still hunted to within 30 yards of elk that never knew I was there. Uh, so that alone, I think, made me feel good. What mm-hmm. didn't make me feel good was the the failure to execute on my shot. And there was a couple there was a couple things um, that that I definitely did wrong. So I, I had actually forgotten this. I just watched the GoPro footage which didn't capture the shot it was like pointing to the side but um it it did capture that i actually took a couple steps after i ranged which i had totally forgotten so i ranged it for 40 and i shot it for 40 but in that lane this calf was probably a couple yards closer two or three let's say let's say it's two or three um and then in that video it showed that i actually took at least two steps maybe three steps after I range. So let's say there's two more yards. So right there, I'm already five yards off and I'm shooting my 40 yard pin. So let's, let's say it was possibly at 35 yards. It could have actually been closer. Um, so my shot would have been high. Well, I'm also really, really jacked up. It's a miracle. My left to right was good. So maybe my anchor point was a little funky. Um, so I shot over its back. It was a clean miss. That's the fortunate thing. Yeah. Um, at the, I, I was a little bummed out and after missing, I really felt like I needed to spend some more time shooting my bow up to this point. I had never seen my truck in the daylight. So, um, any shooting I had done at my little, uh, what is it? 18 and one Reinhardt target. I think it is, um, has had all been in the dark. It was kind of rushed. So, so we got there, I put it in the headlights and I had Ross shine his, headlamp and my pins to illuminate them. Uh, I shot at 20 and I shot at 38 and they hit, you know, they would have been kill shots. So I called that good. I would not do that again. I do not think that was wise of me. It was probably an inex- inexperienced uh, choice. I, this time I would spend a lot more time. I would send a lot more arrows at that target and make sure that my zero was correct because once I got back to my truck, um, you know, it was like 6 p.m., I forced myself to go back to the truck to shoot in the daylight, spend some time launching some arrows at that target. Uh, when I did that, I was about two inches high at 20. I was about, you know, something like three inches high at 30. And I wasn't even willing to shoot it at 40 without adjusting my slider. So I had to adjust my slider to the 43-yard uh, hash. I have my 40-yard, I have a three-pin, um, and my 40-pin is what um, my slider gauge is set to. So I have my 40-yard yeah, pin set to my slider. Yep, that's my floater. So I had to uh, adjust that floater to 43 yards to get it to hit at 40 um, because it was hitting higher. Um, so there's like th- there's like three mistakes. Well, let's call it four mistakes stacked up there. My actual execution mistakes was my animal was closer to me than I had ranged, and I didn't in the moment account for that. I took a couple steps um, and didn't account for that. And then my setup, which I had very hastily checked um, two days before, for whatever reason, I was actually impacting high, you know, once I kind of shot some groups. So that alone is some 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 lessons learned but i think the most significant thing there is i need to approach um verifying my setup in the field better you know with a rifle you get there you shoot a three-shot group you normally feel pretty good a bow is i would say a lot more complex machine i'm an engineer by trade so i think of things like kind of as engineering things um it's a complex machine there's a lot that could go wrong with a bow compared to a rifle so I I think it's probably wise. Maybe I'll maybe I'll split up my drive a little different and not hit the trailhead in the dark. Maybe force myself to wait till the sun comes up and shoot my bow a lot more. Um, 
in the daylight or just shoot my bow a lot more in the dark. Maybe I need to, you know, I've got a couple tripods now. Maybe I should have set up some, some the tripods because my friend was literally standing there holding a light and he needed to get ready as well. So I feel I felt like I needed to rush a little bit to get my stuff ready and let him get his stuff ready so we could get out of there um, at our schedule, the time we had planned on leaving. But, you know, I had I literally had two tripods and truck. I I think I saw you got that the Asiac tripod as well. So you, you guys talk about gear that serves multiple purposes. Um, I just got the tripod and the tricer pan head and the gun clamp. This is a pretty sweet um, conference call phone holder. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. I just kind of, <laughs> there you go. I just kind of thought of that um, here before this meeting, I may start doing that. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that I, I think I did not, um, appropriately respect how much I needed to shoot my bow once I got there. I did a lot of preparation at home. I think um, I think I'm probably more accurate this year. My setup is better this year. My bow is tuned better this year than it ever has been. Last year, I was losing arrows trying to shoot my foam target at 50 and 60 yards. And this year, I was shooting out to 100, and I never missed my little 18-inch target. So my confidence level, my preparation level, I think was better. But once I got in the field, I kind of totally forgot about it, which I think was a massive mistake uh, on my part. Talking about the dark, and I don't mean strictly about shooting, but I want to make sure I hit on this. From a big picture this year, you ended up staying very mobile and doing you know, day hunts from the truck, looking for fresh sign and things like that. And so you were... A lot of times leaving in the dark, coming back in the dark, you're not staying out, you know, backpacking in the backcountry type thing. And so it was just a very mobile hunt, but that involves, you know, longer days, um, not necessarily mileage wise, although that can be the case, but just time. So I'm curious, like, I think from what I read, you know, you're not chatting before this podcast, like this is the first time you've taken that approach or at least for that long. How did you hold up to that? Because that's one of the potential downsides is like, you know, sometimes guys talk about the the effort of backpacking, which is true. And we've talked about the importance of mobility, which is true. So it's not like right or wrong, but one of the things with being very mobile and moving, and I think you mentioned you hunted from like six different trailheads in nine days. I'm just curious, like that puts you short on time, short on sleep. You're doing a lot of, you know, getting back to the truck late, leaving early, making drives, yada, yada, yada. How did you physically and, and somewhat mentally uh, handle that? Yeah, I, I love those questions because that's the stuff that like a flatlander from Missouri, like if you're not geeking out on that and really thinking about that, um, I think I think you better be expecting some sort of failure in the field uh, of your body. So um, that's certainly something that that I have prepared for a lot this year so um actually this trip um my average mileage was significantly less than my trips where i actually backpack um i burn boot rubber so um when i'm backpacking in uh my short days will be maybe eight miles like that's the shortest i've probably ever done backpacking is eight miles and my long days are a little over 20 sometimes um i gotta tell this story because i love this story this was this was such a, an incredible day. So last year we packed my elk out. Um, uh, the, the last day we packed out, we, it was super cold. So we did one pack out one day and then the next day we did the last bit of pack out. So I ended up doing like, uh, I think it was like almost 22 miles that day. And half of that was with elk on my back, you know, get back to the truck, just all kinds of whatever chemical high your body's going through the torture, the stress, you know, and then rolled out. We're like, all right, let's go get a meal. So we go get a meal um, at a local restaurant and uh, Randy Newberg walks in the door. So I get to meet Randy Newberg after I just packed out my elk and we're sharing elk stories. And it was like, we were on cloud nine. And then <laughs> after we left the restaurant, I got an email that my suppressor was approved. It's like, what? All at the same time. Do I need to, yeah. Do I need to go buy a lottery ticket today? It was an yeah. incredible day. But back to back to your question, um, I'm fairly, I'm 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 about almost six foot, you know, roughly six foot one seventy five right now, um, and I stay fairly active. Um, I happened to look at my phone um, not too long ago. Uh, on one of my training days here in Missouri, you know, I ended up doing a total of like 
oh seven or eight miles that day but then the next day i worked goats and i did like 14 miles um without doing any intentional training so my normal lifestyle i think of being a you know wannabe goat farmer um and this just the general activity level that i have i think um helps prepare me a lot but um yeah this trip i actually did far less miles than i normally do um because normally we're moving a lot to find elk like you're not going to kill anything if you can't find it you could accidentally run into something but um we are spending a lot of time trying to find the elk so that's why i'm burning boot rubber in that late season they're not super vocal all the time so we're moving a lot just relying on our eyes and and sign if we find it this hunt they were vocal we did hear bugles every single day so we were only going in one to three miles uh and then would follow the bugles from there so i on on this trip i was way over prepared for that i brought my backpacking stuff um it just never came out of the truck i, I brought a backpacking gear setup um and i i do my setup super different than you guys you guys are ultra light and you carry your camp every day. I would, I bring my camp set up. It's a little heavier than yours, but I bring it in its own um, compression sack dry bag and I carry it, you know, kind of right behind my head and I drop it. Um, so I'll go in as far as I want and then I will just drop my camp. And when I know you guys are more, you carry it the whole, whole time around where, wherever you're moving to. So um, I think that, my style of backpacking in is a lot less efficient than yours. And I think I'm burning more boot rubber because of that. Cause I'm going back. Maybe I might be going back three miles to my camp. Maybe it's usually mm. one to two, but that alone is not really that different than hiking from a trailhead going two miles deep or so every day. It really isn't. Mm. Um, the unit that I've been in just happens. The unit that I have historically hunted is a lot of road hunting pressure, which ends up pushing them near the wilderness boundary. And there is virtually no one back there um, except people on horseback and crazy people like me. Um, so uh, yeah. the closest I've ever packed out an elk to my truck was four and a half miles. And the furthest was six. Um, so that's, that's, that's been my pack out experiences so far until this trip. Were you getting back super late after dark and then getting up and leaving before light again? Like how did you, yeah. manage, did you get enough sleep through the week just with all the back and forth and driving to trailheads and all that? I am very blessed that I sleep extremely well in the mountains. I sleep better in the mountain than I do at home. Um, I have a kind of chronic back problems. Um, and at home, the, my flexibility and the stiffness of my back is pretty bad. I even have like an adjustable bed. It's just a problem for me. But in the mountains, it's probably the exercise level that I'm, you know, having in the mountains. My flexibility is phenomenal. By the last day of the trip, I can usually wake up. You know, this time I slept in the back of my truck on a, my Paco pad, which actually got a hole in it on this trip. But even so, I slept phenomenal. I can wake up straight out of bed and like go to touch my toes and my knuckles will touch the ground. Um, I can't do that at home. So I'm, I'm, I'm just blessed to be able to uh, sleep very well in the mountains. So yeah, I did. My, my only issue with the daylight thing was I felt like I was really rushing when we got back to camp once we, uh, cause we were getting back to camp sometimes at like 9 PM and it was getting dark around 8, 8.30 or so. Like last legal light was maybe 8.15 or something like that. So a lot of times we're getting back to 9 p.m., getting back to camp at 9 p.m., making dinner, socializing a little bit, and then going to bed at 10 to 11 p.m., then getting up at 4 a.m. That didn't really bother me, but it made me feel rushed. Like I felt like I wasn't prepared. Uh, I felt like I was a little bit lazy in my organization sleeping at the truck. Um, because it, it, it afforded me the option to change my setup every single day, like what I'm bringing in my bag. I started out with a little more stuff. And then when I kind of felt the weather out, I left a lot of, I didn't, I didn't pack my puffy pants. I didn't pack, 
any base layers. Um, I generally run pretty warm anyways. So eventually the only extra clothes in my bag was my Uncompagre uh, jacket. That was it. Um, zero extra clothes. I, I packed in three liters of water um, so that I didn't have to filter anything. But that was that was my most significant complaint about not getting leaving so early and getting back so late was I, it made me feel rushed and i it didn't let me shoot my bow in the daylight however uh ross and eric on this trip this is something i'm gonna probably steal from them and i'm sure a lot of people do this you guys maybe even do this you probably said it on this podcast but i'm just not smart enough to listen to that portion of it <laughs> um i'm i'm i I should have said this up front. I'm a fairly new listener to this podcast, I would say. Um, my friend Ryan introduced it to me like two years ago. So that's – I hadn't listened to that up to two years ago. But now I have listened to every single episode that's available on the iPhone podcast app. So I've listened to all of them. And your guys' podcast, by far my favorite. I absolutely love this podcast. You skip all, a lot of the BS. There's certainly a little bit. But it's just nitty-gritty details technical stuff super cool uh stories i love this podcast you guys are doing a phenomenal job i had Perfect. to say that um but uh kind of back to physical preparation for this um i i would say that um this this year personally for me has been uh we, i've had some personal challenges this year and i i gained a i gained a bit of weight i actually was the heaviest i've ever been um, in the middle of July this year. So I, I was up at 190. I know some people will think that that's a joke, but um, <laughs> I it, I felt terrible at 190. I didn't feel good. Um, so it was my birthday in July and I decided that I needed to like shed some weight. I know people talk about, oh, I need to get the lightest this and that. You know, I need, I can't afford these extra four ounces on my rifle scope well i was like 15 pounds overweight and instead of and i focused on getting ultralight gear where, where i think it's appropriate but i'm happy to carry a super heavy rifle or a super heavy bow and make sure that my body isn't carrying any extra weight so this year i got back down to 175 pretty quickly um and that effort certainly helped and it was mostly just diet um i have uh, no self-control basically. So if there's crackers and junk in the house and cookies, I'm going to eat it. So, um, got back down to a reasonable weight for me. Um, I came back from my trip at about 174. So that's, that's kind of where I have been. I think I graduated high school at 180. So I'm, I'm right where I'm pretty lean, uh, and functional. So for this specific trip, my training this year was kind of focused on, torturing my hip flexors because last year uh i tried to pack out i think it was a front quarter and a, my loose meat bag um and when i when i'm trimming out an elk i do not leave anything for the birds and the bears really so my loose meat bag on this cow last year was 65 pounds i can't remember if backstraps and tenderloins were in there i think backstraps were in with the front quarters but we got 252 pounds of boned in bone in meat back to the truck and once i got home and trimmed it all it was 192 pounds of meat totally trimmed before i made things with it um so that was that was awesome but i tried to carry two meat bags for like a couple hundred yards and it just smoked me last year i did not do a significant amount of training last year because the friend that went with me, um, if I had, if I had done that, I, I would have been leaving him in the dust and I kind of wanted to see how little I could do and still succeed. So I did my antelope trip in September. Uh, it took me two hours to kill an antelope. Then, uh, I didn't do any training between my antelope trip in September and my late October elk trip. And that was intentional. Um, I, I do a bunch of goat stuff at home on the weekend. So I was getting physical activity. It just wasn't heavy bag training. Um, I normally, my normal goal is, uh, with a 50 pound bag, do at least five miles with at least a thousand foot of vertical, uh, gain. That's not always possible, but I've got several routes that I do. I can do a route right here on my road, um, in front of my house that'll do that. But, um, 
that hip flexor torture last year really got me thinking I should tr- because because I was going to be alone for five days in the middle of the week. I thought I might have to pack out two meat bags at once. It was a possibility, a good possibility. So this year I did my normal 50 pound bag stuff. Um, and I did a lot of, and I did this last year too. I did a lot of weighted, um, ankle weight training. Uh, I actually had to stop that this year. I had five pound weights on each ankle and they ended up making my boots move around a lot and just destroyed my heels heel blisters super bad i do not get any kind of significant foot issues in the mountains but the weighted weighted ankles because of i was hanging my weights off of my boot not above my boot um Um, if you put it above the boot i think you would not have this problem but i was trying to get that weight as low as possible to work my legs as much as possible um, and it made my boots slide around and I just destroyed my heels. Um, so I, I had to go for a pretty long time without wearing shoes to try and let my heel blisters heal. And I actually did some hikes in Birkenstocks. Like I did like 50, 50 pounds. They did great. Those, those cork soles, as long as you don't sweat, if you sweat yeah. in a Birkenstock, you're, you're probably going to the hospital, but I did a, about a three mile hike with a 50 pound bag just up the road with the kids. Uh, and those broken socks were super comfortable. But, um, so what I did for my hip flexor specific training was super heavy bag training, but in a progressive schedule. So I did, um, I started out with an 80 pound bag and then I just scooted up in five pound intervals. The most important step is listening to the Humpback Country podcast while you're doing that. I think that made my hip flexors get bigger. <laughs> but uh secrets I just out. kept scooting yeah secrets out I just kept scooting up in five pound increments and then I ended at a hundred pounds uh and that hundred pounds was the week of my departure so I was kind of trying to break myself at home a little bit without and I was my miles were like a little over three miles um not a lot of vertical gain. So it wasn't really working my um, vertical skills. It was it was really developing whatever you end up developing when you're carrying a heavy bag. Um, and I spe- just spe- specific was worried about my hip flexors because I had a problem last year when I didn't train very hard. So come this year, um, we ended up getting down to the last day of my trip, which was day nine. Um, and I actually got to test that not on an animal I shot, but, um, we ended up, uh, Ross ended up shooting, uh, a bull. We, we had that last weekend was, I mean, if you could like, uh, paint a picture of what you wanted, uh, like an, a day in the elk woods to be like, this was like exactly what I was looking for. There's <clears throat> a new spot and they were just screaming in there. Um, non-stop all day long even at the trailhead 200 yards from the trailhead there was bulls just going bananas till like 11 p.m at night um, right above the outfitter camp it was kind of funny but uh so we hiked in tons of bugling action there was one break in bugling from 1 p.m to 2 p.m on saturday had some really close calls had some bulls come in had some uh had some cow encounters but not a a ethical shot so no no arrows were flung the next day we were like let's go to the next drainage over there was just bugling everywhere so we just started heading towards some of the bugling and um it was about 7 30 in the morning so was, the, the sun was just starting to come up and we crested over in in the middle of a burn over a, just a little knob and we ha- an elk barked at us so we instantly stopped and then then it moved up Elevation justifies and barked at us again. So Eric and I dropped back and started cow calling and breaking sticks and just kept scooting further and further back. Um, honestly, did not think it was going to work. Uh, it was just worth a try, though. We were there. We were. My Onyx said I would said we were 0.66 miles from the truck as the crow flies. So um, we gave it a try. That bull came right in, uh, and 
around a 35 yard perfect broadside shot ross put it exactly right behind the shoulder in the crease full pass through um we ended up finding the arrow and the bull went like around 100 yards maybe 120 yards or something died super quick but um that was a really kind of eye-opening experience for me number one it let me test um did my training work so i i made them let me carry two bags two meat bags out they wanted to split up the loose meat bag but i said let me carry it all out myself because i want to see if my training was effective so we it it was like 1.2 miles that we hiked out um all downhill some of it fairly steep uh and when i got back to the truck i weighed my bag um and it was it ended up being a 120 pound bag and i could tell it was more than 100 um and that's i had a couple questions for you guys on kind of how that felt and how i could address that um so my hips did great you know reasonably painful but very doable i felt like it was still very safe load for me um at the pace i was going and at the capability level that i had gotten myself to um which is whatever, you know, I could, could achieve just here at Flatlander in Missouri. But, um, my feet, uh, had quite a bit of numbness pretty quick in my forefoot. Um, I didn't have them laced insanely tight on the front end, but that was kind of one of my questions to you guys. If you are, if you have one of those ridiculously heavy bags, um, you know, if you're trying to beat the heat, and get that meat in a cool place as quickly as possible, and you just end up in that scenario, if your feet are doing that, what might the solution be to that kind of foot pain? Yeah, I typically see more of like numbness and tingling and that, any type of that sensation higher. So like further up at the hip or even like the top of the leg. But you're saying you had it in your forefoot, but not anywhere throughout the leg? Uh, no, there was there was definitely some numbness eventually. Um, like when I was doing those three mile hikes by the end, there was, you know, it, it'd take me a little over an hour to do the three miles with the hundred pound bag. But, uh, this, the, the numbness in the foot was a lot more rapid. Um, this is the boot where I have plenty. It's a, um, Hanvog Alaska GTX. I got it for late season muck and, and wetness. Um, but those mockers on that trip, I more, I wore my mockers on day one. And that toe box is kind of restricted for my foot shape. And it just caused me a lot of foot pain on day one. So on day two through day nine, I was in my Hanvog Alaska GTX. Um, and they did amazing. Zero problems. Um, that last day, though, with that 120-pound bag, I did have a lot of forefoot pain. Um, maybe I laced them too tight. But, you know, heavy bag coming down fairly steep slope. You know, my foot probably was pushing pretty hard for, hard forward. Maybe that's just something that you just have to deal with when you put on a, you know, ridiculously heavy backpack. I don't know. I didn't want to do that, but I had prepared for that just in case I had to do that solo. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, maybe that's I a don't, good argument for doing the leapfrog uh, tactic. Right. Yeah. Break I don't see that. I, I haven't dealt with that. And then I just haven't dealt with like from a a pack perspective and I haven't dealt with many customers who run into that where it's in the foot and especially quickly like that. So I would yeah, look more quick. at something like perhaps it was lacing, perhaps as you said, if it was like real steep downhill, you know, between the weight and the slope, like a lot of times you'll under heavy movement in general, sometimes you'll start to like compensate or have a different movement pattern. But then when you throw in like say real steep terrain and you're trying to stabilize that heavy weight, um, your movement pattern and even the way that your, uh, your foot strikes, the movement pattern of your foot can be a little bit different. So I don't, I mean, I think there's multiple factors that it could relate to. I just don't, I haven't dealt with that, uh, to say anything definitive. Yeah. What, what what question were we even trying to answer? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you're good. Yeah, I mean, we've covered a lot and there's a lot of good takeaways. I did want to, you know, chat briefly. We're going to chat again later this year, but uh, what where's your head at going into, as we discussed, like just a recap for the listeners, years of elk hunting, 
cow tags, mostly mid-season. Now you have this archery experience that we just talked about, but now you have this late-season bull tag. Uh, so yeah, plans for that, things that you're considering, just where your head is at as we go into that hunt, which uh, we can touch base in the future and hear how it went. But uh, how are you looking at it right now? Yeah, so um, I have... I've gotten the cow, like you guys have said it a bunch on your podcast. I have been doing these cow tags to gain just general elk hunting experience. So I finally have a bull tag. I did this, I did this archery trip so that I could learn some archery tactics. This bull tag has the potential to be significantly cold. Uh, when I talked to one of the biologists, he was like, you better bring a snowmobile. I was like, well, I'm not doing that, but, um, he's like well then you better bring some uh skis and so i don't know i don't know if they just tell people that to kind of scare them a little bit but um it certainly has the potential to be you know minus 20 at the weather station uh this hunt which is december 1st through january 31st um it gives me a lot of flexibility in when i go so my and this this particular tag did not exist last year or for many years previously um, there is a late season cow tag, but this late season bull tag did not exist. So potentially the bulls at this time of year are not used to being hunted. Um, the cows are, but the, the harvest success has been kind of low in that later cow season. So they've actually transitioned a lot of those later season cow tags to earlier season. So my hope is on December 1st, um, these bulls won't be expecting to be hunted so my strategy is whatever the weather is be there a few days early to scout my cow tag is in the neighboring unit that i didn't fill on my archery trip so i can actually go out and in one trip possibly do try to fill my cow tag if i get done early uh enough do some scouting for my bull tag it's a fairly limited um, area that I can hunt. It's bounded within, you know, a couple roads. It's not the full unit or, you know, within these drainages, it's, it's a pretty limited, I think it's only 3000 acres I'm allowed to hunt. So there was probably a lot of people that, I mean, is that public? Cause when I, you know, the late season stuff obviously can run into private issues a lot. So for this specific tag, you do have kind of some, some public access to hunt. Yeah, there's very little of the private land that is within this bounds. I believe this has, so there's a feed ground nearby, which obviously will, you know, kind of congregate everybody when it gets brutal cold. And they, I think they, do they start feeding on December 1st at the feed grounds? Uh, maybe somewhere in that area. So they're accustomed to, you know, seasonally coming towards the feed grounds. And that ends up doing, doing some damage on the local private properties. Um, so they really try and, you know, manage numbers, give these tags, um, for this time where they, they're really congregating your success rates should be, should be pretty high. And historically looking at the harvest successes for that season hunt, like they are, they are fairly high, but for some reason people haven't been filling them lately. So they've been switching them to be an earlier season. So this later season I've hunted these slopes before I've been there before. So I, I almost feel like I don't have to scout. I wouldn't have any hesitation just showing up uh, as the sun's coming up and expecting to see some elk. I've been in there. I know where they're at. I drove, I, I was down in that area um, on this trip and there's one spot where you can get reception. And I went there to call my wife and kids at one point in time. And even with the truck door shut from, it was at least a thousand yards away. I could hear bugling over in this um, kind of Island of public land that I'm allowed to, will be allowed to hunt in this late season. So my setup strategy is just going to be uh, to set up a little truck camp with a tent this time on my archery trip. I just slept in the bed of my truck on a pad because I didn't want to have to set up and tear down as we moved around. I really, really enjoyed the ease and the simplicity of that setup. Um, I, I had a sleeping, a heavy sleeping bag and a pad that I left in my truck. That was, you know, 
not not uh you know quite as fragile as like a backpacking pad might be where you might have to baby it it's a jack's jack's plastic welding paco pad um they're made of raft material you can beat the crap out of them um and i do uh so just throw it down sleep on it for this late season hunt though i'm gonna bring my um i think it's a four-person tent but i set up two cots in there um and then i I don't normally bring a heater, but I'm really trying to encourage my buddy Ross to come stay with me in the tent. So I'll bring a heater to 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 appease my local friend. What's really what's really amazed me, not amazed me, it surprised me um, when we have gone out to Wyoming is um, how surprised the locals are that we are doing what we're doing, where we're doing it. Like the areas that I've hunted with a cow tag, they're like, you have a cow tag and you're going back there. Like they look at us like we're crazy, <laughs> but then I come back, then I have a full cooler when I'm leaving Wyoming. So it's like, oh. uh, and then there's been some people like, what kind of, what kind of heater are you running in your tent? And I was like, what are you talking about? I don't use a heater. It's like, I'm just kind of surprised that, uh, they weren't a little like more, you have a vision of like these Western rugged cowboys and they're like, no way, dude, there's no way I'm going out there without a heater uh it I just kind of surprised me a little bit but on this trip i think i probably will bring a heater there's potential for minus 20 and um overnight uh and it would just be nice while i'm making breakfast to have a heat source there i've never done it but i think i will on this trip hopefully don't burn the tent down but uh there is a road on <laughs> completely surrounding the area that I will be hunting. It's not, I don't think it's technically possible to shoot an elk further than uh, two miles from a road that you could access. Um, so the weather will be what really dictates how difficult this is. And obviously if we can actually, you know, find some elk, mm. there's some dark timber pockets in there. Um, and then some fully open um, slopes, grassy slopes but there's also um cattle that get rotated through this area as well um that doesn't necessarily turn me off immediately because last year we were archery hunting and we had cattle 70 yards from us and we had like a 30 330 inch bull screaming his head off about 200 yards away from us that presented himself out in the open so the cattle presence didn't totally drive the elk out. That was kind of a bit of a sanctuary, I think, um, is why the elk were there. But the cattle didn't totally push them out. I've heard – I don't like seeing them in there because um, it confuses me sometimes. Um, <laughs> when I'm hearing sticks breaking and it ends up being a cow, that happened to me multiple times on this last trip. I got real excited. Oh, there's sticks breaking. Nope, nope, just a cattle, cattle cow. But um, – that's my strategy. Uh, I will probably do, mm, you know, put a f at least a full week, if not, you know, maybe try to hunt one weekend through the next weekend, starting December 1st. Um, I think the, the potential for, because uh, I haven't shot a bull yet. All I've shot is cows. The potential for having a pretty, pretty mature animal is definitely there. Um, so I'm going to, try and be a little picky i'm not i'm not that way um on any other hunts that i do um even with that that pronghorn tag that ended up drawn with only two points i really didn't go out there saying i was going to be picky i ended up shooting a really cool looking pronghorn but i'm just not a horn hunter um i like i like the adventure i love filling my freezer and I love that I have now found wild game meat that my wife is really excited about. The kids absolutely love. Um, we cooked up an elk tongue last uh, Friday, and my my kids are just all about the wild game. And oh my gosh, uh, we we tried. My my nephew shot a, a whitetail buck last year, and we we cooked up the testicles with that Steve Ranello's recipe, and I think he calls them hot buttered buck nuts. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That everybody that was at my house tried that. There was like eight people here and we all tried it. Everybody except my wife. And nobody was like, ooh, that's gross. I could not believe how good that was. I will never throw away another or leave in the field another testicle on purpose. That 
<laughs> is an overlooked gem. In in my opinion, with that Steve Ranella approach where you cook it in butter, it was kind of somewhere between like scallops and lobster. That super buttery, uh, kind of soft, fleshy tissue that's kind of scallop-like, kind of lobster-like. It was better than I expected. But So hopefully I can bring home some giant bull testicles and the kids can have a feast. You either just interested or disgusted a lot of people right there there's probably two camps and i can probably guess which one's bigger but uh there's probably not too much middle ground on this (laughs) i understand it you know what if if our culture is at a place where we are so blessed that we get to pick and choose which cuts of meat we eat we are a very very fortunate uh group of people um that's kind of how i look at it i like to I like to learn more about the different cuts and learn how to cook them. And I've certainly spent a lot of time um, trying to perfect that. But uh, yeah, Yeah, liver is still tough for me. I try to like liver, but that's a, that's still a hard one for me. Yeah. But uh, the other stuff is great. Well, cool, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the time today. I know we, you know, kind of bounced around, covered a lot, your past, like this archery season, hunting cows now you got this bull tag it's a totally different experience which i'm excited to touch base again and hear about you know at the end of the year here so good luck with it man and looking forward to chatting and hearing how the story goes and hopefully it doesn't involve any frostbite for you yeah right yeah next time hopefully uh i've got news that i've filled filled two coolers with the two tags so i'll have my work cut out for me Well, that's a wrap on this one, guys. Best of luck to you, Caleb, on your late season elk hunt that's upcoming. And for you listeners, it'd be great to hear from you and how your fall is going. Reach out at any time. You can send an email to podcast at exomontgear.com. Whether you have a story to share or a question for us that we can answer on a future episode. Finally, if you haven't yet, be sure to hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon. 